I, I will introduce my wife, though. She is over here, Heather. Uh, you know, love is a strange thing, and love makes you do strange things. So Heather is the only girl I ever dated, which sounds noble until you realize I was just socially awkward uh, growing up, that I was afraid to talk to girls. So when God provided a girl who would talk to me, uh, I held on to her. So uh, we, uh, we celebrated our wedding anniversary a while ago, and I was reminded of a gift that she gave me one year on our anniversary. It was a scrapbook that contained a variety of letters that I had written her over the course of our relationship. So I want to risk any semblance of reputation I might have by sharing just a small portion from one of those letters, a very small portion. So she had just moved off to college. I was still finishing up high school. She's a year older than I am. And, uh, and I, I, we were technically just friends at this point, but we all know what that means. Nothing. Like we, I, I missed her more than other friends, I'll put it that way. And... Uh, and so I was thinking, here's the girl who would talk to me. Now she's gone. Uh, this is not good. So um, we were going to try to keep in touch. So apparently we had just talked on the phone that night when I wrote this letter to her. And this is what it said. Dear Heather, dude, I am so glad you called tonight. Dude, what kind of opening is that? Like, I know that when a, when a guy writes a letter like this to a girl, you, you pour over every word. I have no clue what compelled me to think that the first word out, out of the shoot should be dude. So, I continued. I have wanted to call you Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and today, but I just figured you were too busy. You're not supposed to say that. <laughs> like you're supposed to say that you've been really busy. Apparently I was not. When I heard your voice, I wrote, when I heard your voice, it was so awesome that I can't explain how I felt. You sounded so awesome. Is this not the most lame thing you've ever heard? <laughs> awesome, twice. <laughs> so it got worse. It got three pages of worse. It was so bad. Oh, so agonizing to read. But so, so I'm going to jump ahead to the end. So, so this was, here was my rousing conclusion. I wish this wasn't true, but this is exactly what it said. My rousing conclusion. Dude. <laughs> Dude, I'm not just wasting ink when I say this. <laughs> wasting ink. <laughs> wasting Can you tell I never had a girlfriend? I mean, <laughs> is it obvious I'm not wasting ink? Uh, my life isn't the same without you around, and I miss having you to talk with 
and spend time with. I miss you something fierce. 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 Really? Fierce. Praying for you, dude. For <laughs> you're counting. That's three dude mentions in eight lines. <laughs> Praying for you, dude. In Christ. Don't blame this on him. <laughs> this, is, this is not his fault. This is your fault. In Christ, David. That is the letter I wrote to uh, my friend. No, 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 no. Don't clap. No. Why, why are you clapping? Why, why in the world would you clap for that? Like, I think you're clapping for yourself. Like, you're glad you didn't write that letter. Like, you, you may have struggled with lower self-esteem, and now you, have just, you just have much higher self-esteem in comparison to this. Or maybe, maybe, maybe you're clapping for my wife. Like... Maybe that's it. Like, oh, somebody give her some affirmation for being with that guy. Uh, or, or maybe, maybe you're clapping in worship. Maybe it's just, uh, maybe you're just thinking, only you, God, could cause a man like that to be married. So, oh, glory be to your name. So, ah, uh, love will make you do strange things. I know that there's a lot of different people in this room coming from a lot of different situations with a lot of different expectations for the next couple of days. But if I can be so bold, I'd like to start this celebration, this conference with a challenge for every single person in this room. So in the next few moments, on this first night, I want to challenge every single individual, every single couple in this room tonight to put a blank check on the table before God with no strings attached. I want to challenge you to say to God, here's my life, here's our life, all that I have, all that we have, our money, our family, our future, our possessions, our plans, our dreams, everything. And to say to God, whatever you want me, whatever you want us to do, I, we will do it. You, you tell me, God, tonight, tomorrow, Saturday, in the days ahead, I'll do it. Whatever, whatever you want me to give away, I will give away. Whatever you want me to sell, I will sell. Whatever you want me to sacrifice, I will sacrifice. Whatever, knowing what whatever means. Knowing that whatever could mean selling your house or houses, your car, your company. Whatever it could mean leveraging all your assets for this cause. Or whatever it could mean liquidating all your assets for that cause. Whatever it could mean totally changing your entire lifestyle. Totally reorienting your plans and your future. Whatever. Which I realize may seem crazy to you right now, but my aim in the next few minutes is to so remind you how much 
God loves you. That you might realize tonight that a blank check before God is not crazy. It's not strange. My aim is to show you, in light of God's love for you, a blank check before God is the only thing that makes sense. That's my aim in the next few minutes. And I can't do that. I can't do that with uh, stories or um, statistics. But I believe God's word, by the power of God's spirit, can do that in this room in just the next few minutes. And so I want to read what might be a familiar, maybe even a dangerously over-familiar passage from God's word to, to us in this room. I want you to picture it with me from Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah writes, in the, King U, in the year that King Uzziah died, so picture this, envision it. I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. Just imagine this. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. With two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called. The house was filled with smoke. Isaiah writes, I said, woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I live in the middle of a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am. Send me. So why? Why would, why should every single person in this room put a blank check on the table with all your life, all your possessions, all your plans, all your future? Here's why. First and foremost, ladies and gentlemen, we have an incomprehensibly glorious God. Incomprehensibly glorious God. Do you hear what Isaiah said? He said, in the year King Uzziah died, this happened. King Uzziah had reigned for 52 years among God's people. We're used to a president who reigns for four, maybe eight years. 52 years. For many people, this is the only leader they ever knew. And so when he was gone, there was a massive void among the people. Isaiah looks up in the middle of this void and all of a sudden he sees, he knows God's reign knows no end. He's still on the throne. Throughout history, presidents have come, presidents have gone. Leaders have come, leaders have gone. Kings have come, kings have gone. Only one king always remains. And he is surrounded by angelic attendants, seraphs. Their name literally means burning ones. I love this picture. These are angels that are literally ablaze with the adoration of God. They live, they burn to worship God. 
We know from the rest of Scripture, they're joined by myriads and multitudes of angels beyond number, all of them flaming with pure nuclear-powered praise of God. So just think of it. Like when we stood just a second ago to start singing, we were joining with a chorus that is resounding to our God. And when we sat down, they kept singing. When you and I go to our rooms tonight, lay our heads on our pillows, and we start to fall asleep, they're still going to be singing. When you wake up in the morning, they'll have been singing all night long. They're singing all the time. You say, well, what is their song selection? Holy, holy, holy. It's like they're grasping at the leash of language to try to find words to express the incomprehensible, incomparable nature of the one who is before them. Think about what it means. What does it mean for God to be holy? In one sense, it means he is without error. We know that. We think God is, we know God is, when we think holy, we know God is pure. He's perfect. There's nothing wrong in him. Everything in God is right. But think about it. There's a sense in which uh, that could also be said, in a sense, about angels around God's throne. They don't have sin either. So for him to be holy, it's not just that he's without error. It's that he is without equal. Isaiah 40, to whom, you will com- whom will you compare me, says the Holy One. He's incomparable. There's no one, nothing like him. And the whole earth, it says, is full of his glory. This is what they're singing. They're looking at the whole earth, all of the earth, a continual explosion of the glory of God. The God who's sovereign over everything in nature. That, that passage in Isaiah 40, when he says, to whom will you compare me? Who is my equal? Says the Holy One. He who brings out the starry host one by one and calls them each by name. By his great power and mighty strength, not one of them is missing. missing. Think about that. There's Billions and billions of stars, astronomers tell us, in our galaxy. Our galaxy, one of however many galaxies there are, expanding farther than we can even see. Billions and billions and billions of stars. Our God brings them out one by one and calls them each by name. Bob. Mary. Z14369 or I don't know what their names are, but our God knows their names. And He's the one who's holding them in place right now. Our God is the one who's telling this ocean to stop where it does, and it is obeying His bidding. He's sovereign over all nature. The whole point in the book of Isaiah is not just sovereign over nature, He's sovereign over nations. This whole picture as Assyria and Israel, Judah, other nations, and God is showing his sovereign hand over all of them, which is really good news. Isn't it good news to know that our God is sovereign over all nations? It's good news to know that uh, Modi in India is not sovereign over all. Neither is Kim Jong-un in North Korea. Neither is Assad in Syria. Benjamin Netanyahu, Barack Obama. The Lord is sovereign over all of them. He holds the rulers of the earth in the palm of his hands. Isn't it good news to know that no matter what happens in 2016, neither Hillary Clinton nor Donald Trump are sovereign over all. Our God holds them in his hands. He, he's, he's holy, he's sovereign. holy, holy, holy. He's the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is 
shouting his glory. Our God is incomprehensibly glorious. So what is Isaiah's response to this God? It's not wow. It's woe. Woe is me. Literally ruin upon me. Destruction upon me. Now think about this. Uh, I think if we're not careful, we have a tendency almost to think that uh, Isaiah is kind of overdoing it right here. I mean, he's, he's actually one of the good guys. Huh. But for a, a proper view of ourselves, before a holy God, Isaiah knows the seriousness of sin before a holy God. I mean, think about before this in the Old Testament what we've seen. In, in Genesis 19, you remember when Sodom and Gomorrah are completely destroyed and Lot and his wife are fleeing the city and God says, don't look back. What does Lot's, Lot's wife do? She looks back and all of a sudden she's gone. She is annihilated, gone for a glance. All she did was look back. Uh, you remember Numbers 15? Numbers chapter 15, there's a man who's caught picking up sticks on the Sabbath day. They bring him before God, say, what shall we do to him? Do you know what God says? Stone him. Stoned for picking up sticks. Yuza reaches out to keep a cart from falling touches the ark just like that falls over dead you say well I'm glad that's just the Old Testament well it's not just the Old Testament remember, remember Acts chapter 5 Ananias and Sapphira come in and they're deceptive about their money and their giving and one by one they're struck down dead in church That'll hurt your high attendance Sunday. People start dying in the offering. You're not getting on the list of fastest growing movements that way. Now, let's, let's be honest. We read passages like that, don't we? And, and we think, isn't that a bit overdoing it? I mean, stone for picking up sticks? She's dead I'm just for looking back? She just looked back. So yeah, they, they, they were deceptive, but everybody makes mistakes like, we think this is overly severe. You know why? Because we have a man-centered perspective of sin. When people lie, when people disobey, speak against us, we think, well, that's not worthy of death. And it's not, but this is where we realize that the key is not how small or large we might think a sin is. The key is the one who sinned against you sin against a rock, you're not very guilty. You sin against a man, a woman, you're guilty. You sin against an infinitely holy God, you are infinitely guilty. Infinitely, eternally guilty. Think about it. Genesis chapter 3. One sin. They ate a piece of fruit. All they did was eat a piece of fruit. One sin. And from one sin, Romans 5 says, condemnation came to all men. All men, everywhere. 
7.2 billion people in the world today, all of them sinners. And it all goes back to they ate a piece of fruit. All the effects of sin in the world, all the, all the natural disasters, hurricanes, tornadoes, tsunamis, world wars, evil, moral evil, rape, kidnapping, murder, trafficking, holocaust, on and on. It all came from one sin. And we in this room have committed Hundreds of thousands of them. Ladies and gentlemen, we have an incomprehensibly glorious God and we are a sinfully lost people. Deserving, warranting in our lives nothing but eternal death before this God. So Isaiah cries out in his depravity. And how does the Lord respond? With mercy. We have an incomprehensibly glorious God. See it. We're sinfully lost people. And we have, I'll put it this way, we have a scandalously merciful Savior. The Lord commands one of these angels to take a live coal from the altar, the place of sacrifice, bring it over to him, touch him, and say, see, your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. How? Think about this with me. How can a holy God say to a guilty sinner, you're not guilty? How can God say that and be holy and be true? Because Isaiah is guilty. So how can God be true, holy, just? Look at a sinner, a guilty sinner, and say, you're innocent. That's a scandal to any one of us. doesn't matter if you consider yourself conservative or progressive or liberal or anything else. You have a sense of right and wrong. You expect right to be praised and wrong to be condemned. And you expect God to do the same. But he doesn't. He takes people who are totally rebellious and he says, you are perfectly righteous. He says to those who are guilty, you are innocent. How is that possible? This is the question of the Bible. How can God be loving to sinners who deserve his wrath? How can he be merciful to sinners who deserve his just judgment? Now that's not what we think the question of the Bible is. There's not a lot of people who are losing sleep at night in our culture over why God's being loving to sinners. No, we point the finger at God and we say, how can you judge how can you condemn good people like us that is not the question of the bible we have such a wrong perspective of ourselves the question of the bible is how can god be just and at the same time justify those who are totally guilty before him and that sets the stage one of the greatest passages in the book of isaiah and the whole bible Later on, in Isaiah 53, when God through Isaiah promises that there is coming a suffering servant who will bear our griefs and carry our sorrows. 
talking about Jesus, he will be pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was, will, will be the chastisement that brings us peace and with his wounds we can be healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've all turned everyone to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. How is it possible for you and I to be made right, to be declared innocent before holy God? Here's how. He sends his son as a substitute sacrifice for us. Talk about the wrong goat in the offering. We all bring the wrong goat. Even our best works, as filthy rags, Isaiah later says. But one sacrifice, one sacrifice is sufficient. Jesus the Lamb of God, who came to live the life we could not live, a life of perfect obedience to God, no sin in him. And then, though he had no sin for which to die, he died. Why? He died in your place and in my place. He lived the life we couldn't live, and then he died the death we, you and I, deserve to die. And then it gets even better He didn't stay dead. He conquered the enemy we cannot conquer, death itself. He rose from the dead. We're talking resurrection. We're not talking resuscitation, reincarnation. We're not talking went to heaven, came back, wrote a best-selling book about it. We're talking dead for three days, then walking around alive. We're talking, you go to a funeral tomorrow, you see a man's body put in a coffin, that coffin put in the ground, dirt poured over it, and then next week, that same guy comes up to you on the street and says, hello. That's unusual. It's the greatest news in all the world. Death has been defeated. And eternal life is possible to Sinners everywhere who will simply turn and trust in God's love for you. That's a scandal. Isaiah 43, 25 says, By the grace of God, I'll remember your sins no more. Think about all your sins. He says, I'll remember them no more. It's not that God has amnesia. He's omniscient. He knows everything. The beauty is, though, God knows every sin you have ever committed, will ever commit, and he, in his grace, through your trust in Jesus, chooses not to, tr- not to count one of those sins against you. There's an old story about a, a, a guy uh, over in England who bought a Rolls Royce and it had been advertised as the car that will never, ever, ever, ever break down. And so he paid a hefty price for the car and was driving it uh, out in the country one day and uh, broke down. And so he, he called up Rolls-Royce and he said, hey, the car that uh, you said never breaks down is broken down. And so Rolls-Royce uh, put a mechanic with equipment into a helicopter and flew out to the car, fixed the car, and the guy went on his way. Well, the guy expected to get a, a bill from that. It's not often that... Uh, a mechanic flies out to you to fix your car, and uh, he had means, wanted to cover his bill, just get it behind him, but for a couple of months, the bill never came. So finally, he called up Rolls-Royce, and he said, hey, listen, this is what happened. Uh, car broke down, guy flew out in a helicopter, fixed it. Can you just send me my bill so we can get this behind? And the response on the other end of the phone was, uh, I'm sorry, sir, but 
we here at Rolls-Royce have no record of anything having gone wrong with your car. <laughs> Just think of it. And you, standing before God, and him saying, I have absolutely no record of anything ever having gone wrong in your life. What mercy. What grace, what love. So now, so now doesn't it make sense? Doesn't it make sense when the voice of the Lord now booms in this scene and says, whom shall I send and who will go for us? At that point, what you don't see Isaiah say is, well, where are you thinking about sending me? What do you have in mind? I might if. So then, brother or sister in Christ, why in the world would you say that to this God? I might sell this if, if I might sacrifice. I might do this if, well, just tell me. Well, we'll see. I said, no, now you realize. A blank check before this God is the only thing that makes sense. To say to this God, here's my life overwhelmed by your love for me. You've wiped away all my sins. You've reconciled me to yourself. I have the confidence of eternal life forever. I have nothing to worry about on this earth. So here's everything I've got. And you're sovereign anyway. It's yours in the first place. I'm just a steward of it. Who are we to think we owned it in the first place? We don't own anything. He owns everything. He's sovereign over it all. He's Lord over it all. So that means our lives are his. And they're gladly his. Right? I mean, gladly his. This is where we begin to realize. So make the shift in our minds and hearts that giving God a blank check is not something we need to be afraid of. Like if there's any fear in you when it comes to what might he lead me to do, if there's any fear in you in putting the blank check on the table, I just remind you who you're giving the blank check to. He loves you so much. He knows so much better than you do what is best for your life. If you can trust him to save you from an eternity in hell, certainly you can trust him to lead you on this earth. And not just to lead you, but to satisfy you every step of the way. He's good. Once you realize who he is, you realize the craziest, most foolish thing you could ever do is put conditions upon your obedience to this God. That makes no sense. That's crazy. And this God has purposes. He's accomplishing in the world. That's why the question is, whom shall I send? Who will go for us? I have purposes that I'm accomplishing. I want my glory known in this world. I want my grace known in this world. Isaiah knows this grace is not just for him. 
It's not intended to stop with him. It's intended to spread through him. And so he says, here am I, send me. And so lift your eyes as best as we can from a beautiful place like this in the world. Let's lift our eyes for just a moment to a world in need of God's grace. So I'll share just one story because of its influence in my own life. It was almost exactly two years ago when the Lord, had, Lord started to redirect my plans and my future in a way that I didn't see coming. As a pastor, I traveled overseas a few times a year and I'd taken a trip to Nepal, but this trip in particular, the Lord did an unusual work in my heart and my life. We took a few guys, we helicoptered in to the height of the Himalayas and spent about six, seven days hiking out of those mountains and, uh, and it was five days before we even met somebody who had heard the gospel of Jesus Christ before we had a conversation with them. So we're talking to people you go up to, you know about Jesus? They say, no, I don't, I don't know who that is. So these are people, so get the picture, these are people who, uh, who are sinners before a holy God, stand guilty before a holy God, on a road that leads to eternal condemnation, and nobody's ever even told them how they can have eternal life. So just to share every chance we got. And then we got to this one place in Nepal called Pashpati. It's a, actually a Hindu holy site. And nobody prepared me for what we're about to see. We rounded a corner and we're standing in front of this river, this Hindu holy river. And there's funeral pyres set up on top of the river. And the guy who's with us begins to to explain to us what's happening. Their custom is within 24 hours of a friend or family member dying, they bring the body to this funeral pyre, they set it on top of the fire, they light it on fire, and as the ashes go down in the river, they believe this is helpful in the process of reincarnation. So he's sharing this, and I'm just standing there in stunned silence. I realized, like, just picture it. I'm looking at these bodies ablaze. And I realize I am looking at a physical picture of a spiritual reality. Like these people, 24 hours before we're alive, now they're dead. I'm looking at their bodies, but... They're in, I mean, the Bible's true, which it is. I hope we believe it is. We don't talk a lot about this, but they're in hell. And they're going to be there forever. Like these people, their bodies, I'm looking at them, but these people, they're in it. They're going to be there forever and ever and ever and ever without end. Never ending. 
And then, as if that wasn't heavy enough, then it hits me that most, if not all, of these people who 24 hours before were alive, dead in hell, and nobody ever even told them how they could go to heaven. can be tolerable for us. To know that love like we know in this room is available to everybody in the world. And it's their greatest need. Of all the needs in the world, their greatest need is to know that God loves them enough to make a way for them to know and enjoy him forever and ever and ever. To be saved from their sins and all its effects and to be Reconciled to him for all of eternity. And so I challenge you tonight. In view of his great love for you. And in view of his great love for them. To put the blank check. Put a blank check on the table before God tonight. Maybe for the first time. Maybe in a fresh way. In your life, your marriage, your family, and to say, it's all here. Our possessions, our plans, our dreams, our lives, our future, our family, it's all yours. We trust in you. And I believe with all my heart, that God will show his love to you and through you in ways far beyond what you can even begin to ask or imagine tonight. Let's pray. Could I invite you just in the complete quietness of this room put a blank check on the table before God. And where you're sitting, just say to him, here's everything I am and everything I have. Whatever you want me to do, I'll do it. Here I am. Send me.